Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? Have you ever looked at the global tech stocks and plotted on a graph the distance of their headquarters from the San Francisco Bay Area versus the amount they pay their graduate software engineers? Well, my guest this week has. His name's William DeGale, founder of Blue Box Asset Management and the manager of the Blue Box Technology Fund. William was an absolute joy to talk to. This is a fascinating conversation. We discuss his views on the technology sector as a whole as it moves from an industry vertical to an economic horizontal. He has really interesting views on how the disruptors of today will be disrupted tomorrow and how he builds his portfolio against this backdrop. And we talk a little bit about some of his favorite stocks. I would really recommend checking out William's website, um, which is in the show notes. There's a lot more great content by him. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. William DeGale, co-founder of Blue Box Asset Management and lead portfolio manager uh, of Blue Box Global Technology Fund. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. William, we're going to start, if we can, with your background. Um, You started your career as an accountant. Did you think in 2020 you'd be running a global technology fund? I wouldn't have been entirely surprised if I had. I'd be surprised how I got to that position, but not specifically technology, but I I wouldn't have been surprised to be a fund manager. And so how did you get to go from... Accountancy to global technology. Um, via the House of Cavalry, which is an unusual <laughs> and, in theory, impossible route, but um, it worked rather well. I see. And then, so after your time in the army, where did you... Where did you so then I joined Mercury Asset Management, as it was then. And then Mercury turned into Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, and that turned into BlackRock. So I was at BlackRock for 20 years to the day, basically investing in tech stocks. And... This podcast, is, as you know, is called the Why Invest podcast. Why invest in global technology at the moment? Where Can you define the opportunity set as you see it? Yes. So technology is changing a lot of our lives at the moment. And uh, I'm sure we're going to explain why it's happening more now than in the past. But every other industry now, the company that is winning is the one that is looking and behaving most like a technology company. It's using technology to disrupt its industry. And once one company starts doing that, all its competitors have to do so as well, or they'll go out of business. So technology becomes a cost of doing business in every other industry. And people focus on the disruptors, the companies that are using technology to disrupt the industry. But they're making a mistake because those are not the companies that are making the money. Those are the companies that are spending the money. And if you're looking and behaving like a tech company, then you're buying computer hardware, software, semiconductor services, networking equipment. So basically, the technology sector. All that money, from every other sector is going to the tech sector. And what essentially is happening is in every other industry, because of this disruption of tech, companies are spending their excess returns on technology. And if you don't reinvest your excess returns in your own business, you don't grow. So the rest of the economy is spending its excess returns in the tech sector. 
which is why the only growth in the market in profits in the last eight years has been in the technology sector. The rest have just netted out at zero. So that's basically the argument for technology, why it's done so well. And for reasons I'm happy to explain, that's going to continue for a very long time. Is there, has that effect, you think, accelerated, let's say, in the last five years? Yes. And what, what's the reason for that? So to me, there was a change in the way that technology operates, a fundamental change from about 2005. And it's really built up speed since then. These things start in a small area and then expand. And it's a way in which computers interact with the rest of the world. Because basically in the 20th century, they didn't. We, the human beings, would look at the analog world that we live in of continuous variables. We would think of a problem and we would translate that into a digital format, typically with a keyboard, so that the computer, which the digital creature, could understand it. And at the other end, the computer, having done something very clever, would produce a digital result on a screen, on a printout. And we, the human beings, would read that digital output and we would then act on the world. And from about 2005, that began to change and throughout technology now it's changing because what is happening is the human being has taken him or herself out of the loop so the human being is no longer the input and output device the internet of things is a big element of this the the in end so the system knows something about the world it's a very specific very limited view but it knows something no person no keyboard required and at the other end, the system increasingly is acting directly on the world without human intervention. So robotics, automation, two huge elements of this. So the human being is no longer the input and output device. And if you take the human being out of the loop, then processes run millions of times faster because the human being was by far the slowest element of that system. And if processes run millions of times faster, then hundreds of times or maybe even thousands of times more applications become viable. So things that were simply impossible in 2000 are now just very difficult. And the tech sector is all about achieving very difficult. That's what the sector does. And this break, the human being slowing down the system, has been removed from all of technology at the same time. And it is leading to a, just a knock-on effect of first order, second order, third order results as more and more things become possible and they enable further things. And that is just transforming our lives in many different fundamental ways. And we all know that technology, we feel that technology is accelerating its impact on our lives. But that acceleration is because of this fundamental change. And people get obsessed with the, the details of the individual disruptions and the individual changes. And they don't notice that every single one of those things that's exciting in technology at the moment depends upon the direct connection of systems to the real world. And that is at a very early stage because these big changes in tech take decades to work their way through the system. So we're still really early in this process. So if you, um, if you take out the human um, element, um, what is the limiting factor? What is pushing against that drive forward? So battery power is a big one. The availability of skilled engineers in different areas to create those applications. Um, the capabilities of semiconductors, so Moore's Law, which has been you know, the guiding principle of the, tech, the semiconductor industry for the last 60 years or so. Moore's Law being? So that chips will you basically get twice as much for your money um, every 18 months or two years. It's, it's two different versions of it. Um, and that has slowed down in its original form because it's becoming very difficult to shrink semiconductors, the chips, anymore because you're running into atomic scale. Um, but the chip industry is very good at working out alternatives. So now, rather than shrinking the chips as much, they're fixing alternative architectures, um, packaging technologies and materials, whatever, to try and continue to increase the capability of the semis. But that's, that's getting tougher. 
But batteries are a really big limiting factor in tech at the moment. And who's leading the world in batteries? Um, there are lots of people in the battery space. I suppose in the car area, clearly Tesla is the leader. But really, I think I suspect Tesla's lead there is battery management. And to me, I'm less interested in battery companies than the companies that have the intellectual property to manage those batteries. So, uh, for example, power management integrated circuits, little tiny, very cheap analog chip. But the better it is, the longer your, your battery lasts. And so... I'm very interested in that space because you only have to pay an extra cent and you get 20% more out of your battery life, let's say, or you can charge the battery faster without it bursting into flames. And if batteries are a constraint on a lot of technology, you would pay that extra cent. So you would go to the company that gives a slightly better performance for a cent more because it really changes your entire product, which is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's take a step back and, and, and go and, and think about your investment process. You obviously have a huge universe. How do you um, approach that universe? So first of all, you take 23 years looking at the sector. So that's a great help. And over time, you pick up some favorite stocks. And in my view, you don't change them very much. So technology is meant to be a sector where you're constantly you know, spinning in and out of different companies and different themes and changing your portfolios and all that sort of stuff because you've got to get ahead of the curve on the latest disruptive technology. And to my mind, they're all missing the point. You don't want to do that at all because everyone's trying to do that. So if everyone's doing it, that's the last thing you want to do. I'm much more interested in finding the companies that are enabling those disruptive technologies because those companies don't really change. They can be the same for 10, 15, 20 years in a row. And I basically own them for 10, 15, 20 years in a row. And so I have basically acquired these companies over the last 23 years, and it takes quite a lot to displace one. Um, why would I change a portfolio that's working very well? And these companies are often a bit older, a little bit more boring, but they're doing something that's important and increasingly important over time that no one else can do. And if they're boring, that's a little bit better still because no one else is interested in them. So they'll be expensive, but they'll never be expensive enough. Can you give some examples? Perhaps? Yeah, so Text Instruments is the classic example mm. of this. So I mentioned power management integrated circuits just now. So Text Instruments um, was incorporated in 1951, really dates back to the 30s. It's an almost a 70-year-old company here. Um, and... It's basically been making essentially the same type of product for a long time, which is little analog chips, which are very small, very cheap. Um, but it dominates the market for power management ICs. It has uh, a, a, an advantage in its manufacturing. It has the only 300 millimeter bad, which is basically just making the chips on a 50% bigger scale than everybody else, which gives you a 30 to 40% cost advantage. They also have most of the spec capacity in that section of the industry. And it's a very well-run business. So it will look at these, these advantages it has, and it basically says, with this cost advantage and this scale advantage and this spare capacity, where can I make the most money for my investors? And then it just basically goes and takes that bit of the power management IC market, uh, and it creates very substantial returns from that. And it's been a fantastic performer, but it's just so dull and boring that no one wants it in their portfolios. Mm. So you won't find any fund manager out there boasting about having text mm. instruments in their portfolio. And yet it's been one of the best performing tech stocks in the last 10 years. So it's 17% you know, return a year. I, I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think this is Terry Smith's money with old friends. Um, are there <laughs> a, other areas um, or stocks that you really are adverse to and, and, and shy away from within the tech space? Yes, so, so, lots. So, most. For most. all sorts of different reasons. <laughs> So I don't like change. I don't want to have to change my portfolio. I'm a very lazy portfolio. Really much. I'd much rather own something and leave it there for a long time. So if it's a stock that's only going to be interesting for a short while, it doesn't interest me. If it's a stock that everybody else is excited about, or the CEOs on the front page of Fortune, um, or it's just growing incredibly fast, then I don't want to be involved. It's if it's in a value destructive area of the sector, or at least. It's not massively value creative. So what would be a value? So things like you know, ta so destructive area might be 
hard drives or memory. So both of those can be, because they're very capital intensive business and they have in the past been extremely competitive. So all the value has gone to the capital equipment makers, not to the companies actually making the hard drives or making the memory chips. Arguably, the memory, the the um, market's become more rational, hasn't it? As, yes, exactly. as So memory, this is no longer as true. So 10 years ago, this was true. Now the memory market is definitely a lot more stable than it was before. And likewise, the hard drive industry has shrunk a lot and consolidated a lot, and there are very few players in it, but it's still not a particularly interesting industry, in my view. Um, or... The, the Taiwanese manufacturers. So you know, the key intellectual property in the industry is still in mainly California, certainly in the US, uh, but the execution of that intellectual property is mainly in Asia, and there's not much left for Europe, certainly. But a lot of the execution is very difficult to invest in because the, the story for an individual Taiwanese manufacturer is I'm very slightly better at making this type of product at the moment than all my competitors around me, and that changes very fast. So unless you're completely on top of that, there's no sustainable competitive advantage there. Why have Taiwan continued to be just that little bit better at making those um, chips and, and perhaps yeah. so much better than China. Yes, well, so in terms of chips, it's basically Taiwan Semiconductor. So Taiwan Semiconductor is by far the best company in the foundry space. So basically making chips to other people's design that they just lead the market by miles. And in fact, they've now overtaken Intel as being the leading the, the leading edge competitor of all semiconductors, which is extraordinary. In terms of other manufacturing within Taiwan, I think it's an ecosystem. It's thing is probably a cultural thing it's just a very hard fast moving extremely hard working industry and it's all there so but i mean the chinese are pretty good at that stuff as well so the, how far do you think the chinese are behind in manufacturing i shouldn't think they are at all in mm-hmm. chips are a long way so the the chinese basically there are two things that they can't even really start doing and that is leading edge semiconductor equipment so the machines that you make semiconductors with and electronic design automation eda software so the software that you design chips with um and they don't there is no real industry for either of those outside the west and the west including japan effectively so that is a that's a massive disadvantage they have. So if we cut China off from the semiconductor industry, equipment industry... Which we've done, well, well we nearly we are doing, and well, the while we cut off from, the other companies not quite so much, but it's getting that way, then they will not be able to make leading edge chips and they won't be able to develop that industry in 10, 15 years. And the problem is our industry will continue to keep moving forward. So it's trying to catch up with a moving target. Um, so that is a, a, a massive disadvantage that they have. And that really is the key bargaining chip that the West has against China. Mm-hmm. Do you draw a distinction between um, uh, Chinese tech names and uh, US tech names? I, I sense that you probably don't like either um, of the big oh. tech names. So I'm thinking about Tencent and I'm thinking about yeah. Alibaba versus yeah. Amazon and, and, and Facebook. So... It would probably be true, but for different reasons. So I don't like the Chinese names in general because it's really a corporate governance question. These businesses, currently the really big ones, are creating quite a lot of value. But who are they creating that value for? Who does it belong to? Does a reasonable proportion of it end up belonging to the outside investors because they're our clients, so the people we're investing on behalf of? So if all the value that's been created goes to insiders, then that's not really an investment from our point of view. It's, you know, there's no value being created for us. With the the US mega caps, I don't like them, but for a slightly different reason. I mean, there are corporate governance questions there as well. So it's sort of super voting shares and the like of Facebook and Google and so on. You know, who, is the, who are these businesses actually being run for? But more importantly, they're mega caps. And a mega cap basically is a business that's had the most amazing 10 years. Everything has gone right. And 
in any other industry, that might be a good indicator that the next five or ten years are going to go very well as well, although possibly at the moment it wouldn't be. Um, but in tech, it's a bloody awful indicator. Um, so companies don't tend to go on getting better within the tech sector for 20 years in a row. You've got to the top of the industry, and the only place you can really go from there is sideways or down. So if you own a basket of the mega caps, which is what an ETF essentially is, you know, typically 40 to 50% of a tech ETF will be the mega caps, um, or you own an active tech fund, most act- large cap active tech funds are 50 to 70% in the mega caps, what you own is essentially a basket of the winners of the last round of disruption. I just go ask why you want to do that, because they're not going to be the winners of the next. Collectively, they're not. Now, one or two of those really big companies will be even better businesses in five years than they are today. But the majority won't. Those are the winners of the last round, and they will collectively be the losers of the next round. So I just don't think there's much point in sticking a lot of money in there, but that's what most tech funds look like. And in the top 10 of almost any tech fund, active or passive in the world, will have, of those top 10, typically eight of the 12 tech-related mega caps. So they all look the same. All these funds are exactly the same. So obviously, disruption is one uh, driver of an erosion of returns, but how about regulation? Will regulation come in and, and, and you know, take those returns away? So certainly the threat of it is definitely there. And so whether it happens or not, there will be negative news stories for years to come. And negative news stories are bad for stocks in general. Now, whether the regulator can ever move fast enough to actually change things, the fundamentals, is debatable. Um, you know, they spent years and years chasing Microsoft, and in the end, pretty much while, by the time they came to a conclusion, the problem had gone away. So, uh, and that may well be the case here, but you do see impacts in the way the companies behave. So, for example, if you look at Facebook, Facebook's growth rate has slowed massively. Um, its costs have gone up. But for two reasons. One is that having relied on basically having no responsibility for the content that's posted, they suddenly realize that they do actually need moderators and their artificial intelligence isn't good enough to do that automatically. So they require tens of thousands of human beings to do that. So it's a horrible job. It's a horrible job. Where does that happen? Is that in the Philippines? Yeah, I think a lot of it's outsourced. So then you've got to ask what happens to those individuals. Well, once they've seen appalling things happen eight hours a day for three years, what are their minds like and who's going to pay for them to be rebuilt? I mean, there's lawsuits coming there at some point. So that's an additional cost that Facebook didn't have a few years ago. And this process has slowed down maybe the business to a degree. And also they're investing a huge amount of money in research and development to try and improve the artificial intelligence so they can do it without destroying human beings' minds. Um, And so that business doesn't look anything like as nice a business as it was a few years ago. Now, the stock market doesn't seem to have noticed. So they don't seem to have noticed the margins of deteriorate and the growth rate slowed almost to a halt. But, you know, people get carried away with these stories at the moment. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Maybe this is a hard question, actually. You've alluded to it. But what do you think your portfolio is going to look like in 10 years' time? Um, do you think you're still going to be with your old friends? Yes, I would be surprised. I mean, they won't be all the same. Mm-hmm. And I went back to look at what my portfolio looked like at various stages at my previous employers. The same strategy, basically across two different firms. And really, they were the top ten names. Well, pretty much all in the portfolio now. Uh, the weights changed. Which ones are in the top ten out of the thirty to forty stocks I might own changes, but the names are really the same. What I have to watch, though, what we have to watch for is 
that the story isn't changing. Because, you know, a company can be on the ball for 15 years and then they just lose their edge at that point. We don't want to be involved. So you're constantly checking that the story remains the same. Uh, I'm trying to disprove myself the whole time. No, there is a flaw. No, no, there isn't a flaw. It's still fine. At which point the portfolio stops stay in the portfolio for another year or two. Most of these names will still be in the portfolio in 10 years' time. It's my guess. Interesting. Now, let's just get back to your um, investment process because you articulate, and I'd recommend anyone to go to your website because you have some very good videos on it. But and we'll put that in the show notes. Um, you outline your four characteristics that you look for. Yes. Okay. So this is quite fundamental. So um, we're basically looking for four things in the stock. The first one is a strong underlying trend, technology trend that benefits the company. And direct connection is the big one and explains all the others. But there are other trends out there. The second thing is the company has to be able to create value from that trend. The third one is the need to be barriers to entry or someone will steal that value away. And then the final point is who owns that value once it's been created? Now, that's the world's most boring list because everybody's looking for all four of those, apart from in the tech sector. And in the tech sector, they're only looking for two of them, number one and number three. So tech investors are obsessed with growth. So that's number one, a positive long-term trend. They want companies that are growing very fast. And they're interested in competitive strength, barriers to entry, point number three. And then they don't recognize a need to worry about number two, can the company create value from this technology? And number four isn't even regarded as being a valid question. Who owns the value that's been created is not regarded as a, valid, as a valid question in the tech industry currently. And yet in any other sector, all four of these are key. And they're just as important in tech as in any, any other sector. And why, why are investors only looking to these four things? Because they're basically playing the game with one hand tied behind their back. And the reason is there's a misunderstanding of what the role of a technology investor is. People think that the job of a technology investor is to invest in technology, but it's not. The job of a technology investor is to invest in technology companies. And unless a company creates a value for its outside investors, it isn't worth anything at all. I mean, literally nothing. So if you can see no way that this business can ever create value for its outside investors, it is worth absolutely zero and it always will be. Now, you might be able to find someone who can pay more for it, but it's not worth anything fundamentally. And it's just, you're basically, it's a charity, it's not a business. Uh, How do you measure that? Yeah, oh, in all sorts of different ways. So this is a very sort of vague concept, but I'm talking about profitability and free cash flow. And I'm talking about gap profitability, not just adjusted, mm. because that's the point number four. Anything about who owns the value that's being created, going to someone other than the outside, the outside shareholders, our investors, anything related to that is adjusted away from your EPS figures. So things like stock compensation and overpriced acquisitions and restructuring could seem to happen every year. All these stock, I mean, some technology companies will probably say, oh, well, we need stock compensation. We need to hire the best. We Absolutely. need to keep them yeah, up. they do. Yes, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say I have to pay for them. Yeah, I see. So there is a huge issue in and around um, San Francisco in that the competition, particularly for cloud software engineers, is so intense that they can essentially ask whatever they want. And we have trained companies to pay them in stock comp virtually unlimited amounts, because we, the investors, have decided that stock comp has no cost to us, which is clearly wrong, but that's what we've decided. Whereas the Why is there a scarcity of engineers? Well, well, for two reasons. First of all, there's an awful lot of companies all trying to do clever stuff with cloud, so they need a lot of engineers. And then the zoning in Northern California is very strict. There's no one to live. If, you, if you're leaving college as a software engineer currently to work in Northern California, my understanding is that your starting salary will be somewhere in one hundred fifty dollars to $250,000 a year. And there's nowhere that you can live with that money 
that's commutable to your work. So basically, they're essentially pricing themselves out of the market. It's one of the most expensive places to live in the world. Um, so the, the competition for these, these engineers is extremely intense, and they love options because stock options is the only way that they're going to get rich without taking the risk of starting their own business. So you're never going to be a billionaire through stock options, but if you're lucky and you're in the right place at the right time, you could be a multimillionaire. So they love options. They're the scarce resource. Investors were not scarce resources. Loads of us. There's unlimited amounts of money. And we've been told that options, and we're telling management that options are, are, are have no cost to us, the investors. So what do we do? The management just get a lot of options away, and they have no option but to do that. There's no real choice. Um, do you but, think? Do you think with this um, revolution um, of working from home, it's not really a revolution at all. It's an acceleration. Um, do you think that that um, plot will change? Yes. Do you think that that is a that will um, uh, perhaps I think to remove degree, that scarcity to a degree? Yes. I think it means that the established engineer could go and live somewhere else and sort of slightly take the risk that he's not going to be too out of the flow and he'll be paid less, but he'll probably have a better quality of life. So I think that is possibly going to happen to a degree. But there are, you know, these clusters are, don't uh, arrive by chance. You know, there have been goldsmith streets in cities for thousands of years because that's where you go to get something smithed in gold. You know, if, you're, if you want the very highest quality cloud software created, you go to San Francisco, that's where the guys are. So there is an advantage to the clustering. Um, it's an ecosystem that is designed to be the best in the world, and it is, but you just have to pay through the nose for it. So you can invest in some of these cloud companies or the companies that are hiring these engineers, but you just got to be aware that stock option is an expense. Now, how you calculate it, how you account for it, what the actual cost is, is a very debatable point. Uh, it's very difficult to work out exactly what that number should be. But if you just ignore it and exclude it from your, from your EPS figures or whatever, your income figures, you're just missing the point. And actually, to me, the single most interesting, if I just was given one sort of fact about a company, the one I would pick would be the size of the non-gap adjustment. So with the average analyst, what's the number, what, what are the things they've decided to exclude from their EPS figures? Because that generally takes you straight to the weakness in that business model. So that's the people don't, that people don't want to talk about. And for, for you know, Software companies in around San Francisco, it's stock options. For a lot of tech companies, it's stuff to do with acquisitions. Because, mm-hmm. or some businesses, you know, it's restructurings. So really, that costs are a lot higher than they say each year because there's a bit they try and get below the line mm-hmm. for us to ignore that they do every other year. But it's taking all the costs out they're embarrassed mm-hmm. about. So these adjustments are actually they are take you, they take you straight to the weakness in the business model. Interesting. Do you? I mean, let's go. Let's take the Chinese versus the West um, uh, comparison. Um, do the Chinese, those big, um, heavy-hitting Chinese uh, firms, have the same problem, the same pinch point around um, software um, talent? I think probably. Well, I think nothing like as much is my guess. So there have been an awful lot of Chinese engineers. Tra- I mean, hundreds of thousands trained in the last few years. So they've got enormous resources there. They've got, I suspect, brilliant engineers. You probably haven't got the geographic concentration that you have in and around San Francisco. I mean, if you had to design a city to be difficult, it would be San Francisco. It's the end of a long peninsula with a big bay around the outside of it and pretty poor communications. No public transport worth talking about. That's about as bad as it gets. And we took, we choose to put our software cluster at the end of that peninsula. You know, China's you know, a big country. There's lots of space. There's lots of places, I suspect, where, where people can do that. So you, you don't have that degree of clustering. Is my guess. If you are giving advice to a university graduate, and it sounds like there is a pinch point and there mm. is a skills shortage, where would you suggest they um, focus if they want to get into technology? 
maybe data science or something like that. Um, I think that's. I suspect if you're a, if you're a very bright person, you're well trained in data science, and for the next few years, you're you're going to have a pretty good living. Um, I think the client software stuff that pinch point is probably beginning to loosen a bit. Uh, William Dickel, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wirefest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, William DeGale. If you'd like any more information about William or his business, Blue Box Asset Management, then head to his website at blueboxfunds.com. He puts up a lot of content and it's well worth going through. Um, if you've enjoyed our podcast, then please subscribe uh, and rate it. Uh, maybe even tell your friends. <laughs>